number three underway to Pete Callender show here on News Talk 1110-993-WBT, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Email is Pete at the Pete show.com. And remember, get the podcast. It's at WBT.com uh, on all of the major podcast platforms. Uh, and, uh, you know, pick one of your choosing. You will not offend me. Um, so Governor Roy Cooper's ED is over. I'm sure we can all breathe a sigh of relief, right? We're all very happy that the ED is gone. It's the uh, emergency declaration. 888 days we had his ED. And um, today officially marks the end of the state's COVID-19 state of emergency. Governor Roy Cooper, a Democrat, announced in July that the state... Yellow? That the state of emergency would end on August 15th because the 2022 budget that he signed into law included changes in the law that were requested by the Department of Health and Human Services. Teresa Opica at carolinajournal.com reports North Carolina was one of nine remaining states, mostly led by Democratic governors, under some, store, uh, some sort of state of emergency. In recent, so, it's, so the ED is not as widespread as uh, one may think. In recent months, it has remained in effect mainly for eligibility for federal funding and hasn't had much of an impact on day-to-day life, excluding wearing masks in medical facilities. It's remained in effect mainly for eligibility for federal funding. He's kept the emergency declaration in place to get that sweet, sweet federal money. The overall impact of his 2020 order led to a year or more of closed schools, bankrupted businesses, and lockdowns. Studies, like one from Johns Hopkins, show lockdowns had little to no public health effects while creating a huge economic and social crisis. Cooper declared a state of emergency back on March 10th, 2020, a week after the first cases of COVID-19 were confirmed here. A few days later, he issued executive orders closing K-12 schools for two weeks, the public schools at least, for two weeks, and then putting restrictions on businesses. And initially, health experts like Dr. Tony Fauci said it would take two weeks to flatten the curve. That's what we were told, right? Flatten the curve. If there were restrictions like lockdowns in place for that amount of time, then we would be able to make sure that our hospitals were not overwhelmed. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Cases rose, restrictions got renewed, others got added. Churches, synagogues, restaurants, bars, hair salons, gyms, playgrounds, entertainment arenas, amusement parks, sporting events. They all had their in-person activities restricted or completely shut down entirely. Events like weddings, funerals, and graduations got canceled or had really extreme limitations. Some businesses started to let employees work remotely in order just to stay open. As soon as restrictions were uh, set to be lifted, new executive orders by Cooper extended the declaration each time it was set to expire. 888 days. Or, as my friend Donald Bryson over at uh, John Locke Foundation points out, works out to be about 45% of Cooper's entire term. He had an emergency declaration. Cooper had ED in place 
for about half of his entire term. Now, that obviously that number is going to go down a bit because now it's been forced, he's been forced uh, to have it expire. And they come up with this story like, oh, well, because we got this thing that we needed for the Health and Human Services office and whatever. Yeah, no, it was in the budget. As the first vaccine started to roll out in December 2020, Cooper walked back his reopening with a new stay-at-home order. And that effectively shut down everything from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. Cooper's order required non-essential businesses to close by 10 p.m., as well as banning private gatherings and non-essential travel. The order did not affect construction, manufacturing, or grocery stores. A lot of big boxes, they got to stay open. Small businesses, screw you. The state of emergency, curfews, shutdowns, it all continued through early 2021, along with the mask mandates. The state's heavy-fisted response to the coronavirus pandemic resulted in delayed economic recovery. By May 2021, Cooper lifted all mask gathering limits, social distancing requirements, and removed the mask mandate for most indoor settings. That was May 2021. By the end of July 21, all statewide restrictions had been lifted and mandates, including mask wearing, that all shifted to local governments to enforce. A couple months later, November of 21, Cooper signed the budget. The first one that he has signed since he took office in 2017. And that budget included revisions to his emergency authority that would go into effect January 1st, 2023. So these revisions that were approved, they're not even in force yet. And my prediction, for whatever that's worth, he's going to sue. I bet he's going to file a lawsuit right before January, after the election, he'll file a lawsuit and he'll throw sand in the gears to try to prevent this provision from uh, from starting. That was part of the original Senate budget bill from spring of 2021. It's a direct response to his ED uh, over the past 20 months uh, prior to that budget, right? The revision would require future executive orders of this nature to get approval from the Council of State as as it should, as he should. This should have been going on. This has been, it, I mean, it really is astounding, the kind of free pass that Cooper gets. I want to say it's because, his, well, it's either because we have a completely incompetent press corps, which, okay, but also uh, him being a Democrat, I think that, you know, it's one of the things that you give up when you become a political reporter. You only get to pick one. You can either divine the motives of Republicans or you can divine the motives of Democrats. And apparently you can never divine both. You're, you have no insight. That's what you get. Like you can construct all of these, all of these motivations among the right. But the trade-off there is you're completely blinded to any kind of political machinations of the left. And I don't understand why the Council of State should not be, as is spelled out in law, why they should not be consulted. He made, his, he made these moves with a Council of and the Council of State, by the way, these are all of the statewide elected positions, right? You got the governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, uh, treasury sec, or yeah, uh, uh, treasurer, uh, labor commissioner, insurance commissioner, agriculture commissioner, uh, labor secretary, uh, Department of Public Instruction, Superintendent, and uh, Auditor. 
right? I think that's those, those are the 10. And Republicans had six of those 10 seats. And so when he wanted to move forward and start locking everybody down, he got pushback from some of the Republicans. So he went out and made the announcement anyway, saying, I don't need Council of State approval to do this, even though he sought Council of State approval to do it. He knew, and then he just reverse engineered. He lied. He reverse engineered his opinion on it after he knew he wasn't going to get the votes. And we've been living under it ever since. Cooper admitted and has now admitted for months the reason for his declaration is not an emergency. It's to keep the state under an emergency declaration to fleece the federal government, meaning the taxpayers, said John Sanders, the director for the Center for Food, Power and Life and research editor at the John Locke Foundation. And he's exactly right. All right, now this might sound a bit paradoxical, but it's not. Headline, the results are in. Red states won the COVID fight, hands down. After what I just went through with Governor Roy Cooper's ED, he's a Democrat, so how is this possible? North Carolina, red state, right? But with a Democrat governor. By the way, this is one of the lanes that a lot of Democrats think that they can run in because they attribute North Carolina's success to Roy Cooper. And part of that is wish casting. Uh, but a lot of it is ignorance in that they just don't know uh, that North Carolina has a very weak governor system. The legislature is very powerful in this state, always has been. Um, and that same idea also is uh, reflected in city council governance where mayors are very, very weak. A lot of times they can't even vote on stuff. Charlotte's mayor doesn't vote except to like break ties and on rezonings, I think. So that, and that was by design after the, uh, the civil war issues, insights.com editorial in the state level struggle for the future of America. There can be little doubt that red state model of free markets, low taxes and minimal regulation is beating the daylights out of the blue state model of top-down control, high taxes, and pervasive nanny state regulation, right? Roy Cooper is essentially trading on the success that the Republican legislature created, not for him, but for the state. Republicans took control in 2011. They started implementing a raft of reforms, not the least of which was an overhaul of our tax system. And that has redounded to Roy Cooper's benefit. He just got lucky that he ended up winning by 0.1% of the vote against Pat McCrory so he can claim credit for this stuff despite all of his efforts to shut down the economy of North Carolina and then try to restart it all back up again as if you could do such a thing without any disruptions. The Wall Street Journal deploying data from the center-left Brookings Institution reported that blue states, governed by Democrats, were still 1.3 million jobs short of where they were before the pandemic. 1.1.5 million jobs short of where they were pre-pandemic. Red states managed to add 350,000 jobs. Big reason for the disparity is the fact that millions fled blue states during COVID. Here's a quote. From the Wall Street Journal, excuse me, 46 million people moved to a different zip code in the year 
through February 2022. Isn't that amazing? 46 million people moved to a different zip code. The most in any 12-month period in records going back to 2010. So more than a decade. We saw massive migration patterns in 2022 through 2022. Most of these people moved from blue states to red states. The biggest losers? The biggest losers. Got to say it like that. Loser. California, New York, Illinois. Biggest winners? Number one, Florida. Number two, Texas. And number three, North Carolina. Big blue cities particularly lost huge numbers of people as soaring crime, sidewalk homeless camps, COVID lockdowns, high taxes, and miserably underperforming schools made once beautiful metropolises unlivable for many. This is a big problem for Democrats, electorally speaking, because they have clustered into urban cores, and that gives them a lot of power in those urban cores. When people leave those areas and they start going, I went over these stats a couple of, uh, about a week or so ago, right? The census numbers came out, and the only reason North, or, uh, the only reason Mecklenburg County had a growth in population was because births outnumbered deaths in Mecklenburg. And if you look at the migration alone, more people left than came in. More people left Mecklenburg and they went to the surrounding counties. And, and the people coming here from all of the blue states, not enough to replace those who were here that left. The only reason we grew was because we had more births than deaths. Based on IRS data, blue states are not just hemorrhaging population, but tax revenue and jobs as well. So early in the morning, rise into the street. Okay. Anyway, welcome back to the program. Based on IRS data, blue states are not just hemorrhaging population, but tax revenue and jobs as well. On the loser side, losers, you got New York. They lost, uh, let's see, here was the number. They lost a net $19.5 billion in income. (laughs) That is, it's about 2.5% of their... Uh, A-G-I, yeah. which stands for something. I forget what. I probably should have had that data point before I read it. A-G- oh, adjusted gross income. 2.5% of its adjusted gross income. Then number two, California, they lost $17.8 billion. Illinois third, they lost $8.5 billion and 100,000 people. California lost a, more than a quarter of a million people. Then Taxachusetts and New Jersey, fourth and fifth place. They've all, they all lost money in adjusted gross income. So who were the winners? Number one, Florida. God, oh, Florida. I mean, if they didn't have the Florida man types of stories, I would start having some serious envy. And they also have very large bugs and alligators. So whatever. Um, number one, Florida. Number two. Oh, so Florida picked up, where is it? Uh, Attracted over $41 billion in adjusted gross income. 
Then uh, we have Texas came in second, six and six point three billion, followed by Arizona four point eight, North Carolina in fourth with three point eight billion, South Carolina three point six billion. It can no longer be doubted. The Republican model of governance has shown itself to be vastly more attractive to Americans, especially those in deteriorating blue states who are voting with their feet to escape. This, again, comes from Issues and Insights, issuesinsights.com. This was one of their editorials the other day. There's another question pending, though. It's related to this, which is, are we going to find out that, like all of these red states, uh, now we've got all these blue staters coming in, And they're bringing their old voting habits and their old ways of thinking and they move in and then they create the very kind of blue state crap sandwich that uh, they fled. Some blue states are actually marketing themselves now as bastions of leftist culture, trying to lure former citizens to return. Have you seen any of these billboards? California posted one in uh, in Texas trying to. Yeah, they're like, oh, the Texas experiment failed. They're posting billboards in te- like, hey, pro tip. If, you, if you're posting billboards in a neighboring state telling them that their state's a failure because they have all of your residents, they're not the failure, okay? Given time, most people who move to uh, a new state adopt the attitudes and the mores and the ways of the majority population where they live, not vice versa. But I mean, that's the hope anyway. Republican leaders, though, need to make a concerted effort to remind people fleeing blue states why they voted for their feet or sorry, with their feet for red states. Every Republican needs to be making this argument on the campaign trail to voters saying, if you moved here from another state, we welcome you. We want you to be part of the North Carolina experiment. We're glad to have you here. We want you to be successful. But please do not put in place the policies that ruined the state from which you fled. What else? Um, we have, oh, healthcare workers, a group of 500 healthcare workers slated to get a $10 million payout in a first of its kind settlement, challenging their hospital's COVID 19 vaccine mandate. A coalition of workers at North Shore University Health System in Illinois filed their suit in October 2021, alleging that the healthcare facility was illegally refusing to grant religious exemptions to the mandate. The settlement agreement by the state's Northern District Court means that the people who sued 473 current and former healthcare workers are soon to start getting compensation for being denied religious exemptions from the healthcare system's vaccine requirement. The legal group that represented the plaintiffs, a group called Liberty Council, said that the, oh, oh they're, they're, they're under audit now by the IRS. I mean, with a name like Liberty in the title, you know they're a bunch of right-wingers. Anyway, uh, they said the settlement should serve as a strong warning to employers across America that they cannot refuse to accommodate those with sincere religious objections to forced vaccination mandates. Um, so there's a, different, a couple different categories. I'm not going to go into all the details, but basically you got some people that lost their jobs because they couldn't comply, uh, they're going to get a chunk of money. It's like twenty five k. There are some others that uh, will get an, uh, an additional amount uh, because 
I don't remember what the breakdowns are here, but it, so they, I think the most that they're going to get is like forty five thousand uh, dollars, uh, like per person that was in this group in this class action. Um, the agreement of ten million dollars. Uh, the settlement also puts aside two million for attorneys' fees, because of course. Um, <laughs> what else? What do I have to? Okay, I'm, I'm not going to have time to get well. Yeah, all right. Let me do this. I'm not going to have time to get to the have the green. I'm, I'm going to come back to the Green New Deal here because I also want to talk about monkeypox getting a rebrand. They're renaming monkeypox because it's offensive. Anyway, I'll get to that tomorrow. Let me get to this. Matthew Iglesias, he is a lefty. Okay. He's a guy. This is one of the guys that created Vox.com with Ezra Klein. Okay. And um, he's he likes the Inflation Reduction Act. He says it's a good bill. But he wrote a piece the other day called How the Green New Deal Became the Inflation Reduction Act. The Green New Deal was a successful slogan. He said um, the phrase implied very little in terms of concrete policy, but it was ubiquitous in the climate policy debate. The idea was so powerful, it actually leaped across the Atlantic Ocean into a European context where the reference didn't even make any sense. They didn't have any original New Deal, right? So the Green New Deal... Marketing slogan, fantastic. The left is good at the marketing slogans. I give them that. The progressive narrative looks something like this. Okay, keep this in mind. There is a latent desire among the general public for sweeping change in general and for sweeping climate-related change specifically. Okay, they believe this, that there is this latent desire among all of us that we run sweeping changes and specifically in climate change stuff. The main impediment to that is the elite cabal of special interests. Most of all, the uh, fossil fuel companies. Yeah, who, who make political campaign donations and they buy ads and it distorts the agenda and all that. Okay, that's the second phase. The third, due to the corrupting influence of the fossil fuel industry. Okay. All right, not only do Republicans take bad stances. But sometimes Democrats do, too, which is why they went after Joe Manchin and his financial relationship to the coal industry. Right. That's their narrative. The problem is it's built on a lie, which is that most people don't actually think climate change is really that big of a problem. About two percent of voters say climate change or environmental concerns when asked about the most important problem facing their country. Two percent. That's it. That's tied with health care, school shootings, the courts, but it's way behind things like race relations, poverty, family values, crime, gun control, immigration, oil prices, the economy, inflation. All of those things do way better than climate change. But for the progressives, they think, no, 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 everybody wants sweeping change and they want it on climate change. Which is why Iglesias is kind of happy that the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, is sort of recalibrating. So to find out how the Green New Deal turned into the Inflation Reduction Act, you got to go to the sources. You got to go to the left because this is where it got hashed out. Matthew Iglesias at Vox.com, he po- or sorry, the founder of Vox, but now he does his own Substack. It's called Slow Boring. And believe me, it is. Um, no, I'm kidding. But um, the reason he says, I think the political impact of passing the Inflation Reduction Act is hard to gauge 
Given the public's lack of interest in climate change, I think it's very unlikely that voters are going to reward Democrats for taking action if this is a climate change bill. This is why you're hearing this conflicting messaging coming out of the left on this IRA, on this bill. But get this. Democrats may actually benefit politically from passing the bill because it would give the party license to stop talking about climate change for a year or three. Do you get that? I mean, that's that's pretty big, right? The benefit of passing this is that it gets the progressives to shut up about it. Appearing to be a political party led by people who are really fired up about the climate is, I think, pretty bad for Democrats electorally. It's a much better brand for them to be the party of people who are fired up about health care. The most distinctive idea associated with the Green New Deal was the notion that ambitious uh, is that an ambitious push on climate change should be intimately linked to a large expansion of the welfare state. And he goes on to quote Kate Arnoff or Aronoff. Aronoff, whatever. Uh, she's a lefty writer at New Republic. And she describes the life of a young woman named Gina in the world that the Green New Deal built. Gina attended free preschool and free college in addition to her free K-12 education. She graduated entirely debt-free. I mean, aside from the tax burden and all, but whatever. She received Medicare benefits as a recent college graduate. She's not wealthy. She can live in a public rent-controlled housing, not in underfunded, neglected units, uh, she got access to lush green spaces and child care centers, even bars and restaurants, broadband, water, electricity, all provided for free by publicly owned utilities. There's also a national employment guarantee. You get the idea, right? She constructs this entire world for Gina. That Remember, they did this with Obamacare, too, and we laughed. It was, uh, what was her name? Julia, I think was the character's name. You know, some fictional character like Julia doesn't have to worry about anything. And they paint this picture and all conservatives. Well, we laughed and laughed. Apparently, that was a pretty attractive thing. People were like, oh, yeah, I don't want any responsibility. I'll kick that off to somebody else. Absolutely. But the point here is that the Green New Deal encompasses more than just environment. It has all of this other welfare state expansion included in it. This goes further than anything Biden proposed. But the original three point four trillion dollar build back better proposal is clearly a copy of a copy of a copy of Aronoff's story here, of Gina. He says the core idea of the Green New Deal really was on some level that prioritization isn't necessary. This sweeping vision of eco-socialism would save the planet. He said the idea, this idea, always struck me as borderline insane because it takes reducing greenhouse gas emissions, something the public supports, but doesn't think is very important, and pairs it with multiple unrelated and highly controversial social changes as if deliberately trying to maximize political backlash. Why? That was his question. Why? Why would you try to do this? He said he talked to a bunch of people. He never found a convincing defense of this concept until some, he called him a Democratic Party graybeard who encouraged major funders to support the Sunrise Movement, said that Matt Iglesias was missing the larger picture. And that was basically, get the kids to shut up. The, yeah, the most straightforward success of the Green New Deal was to get people to stop talking about carbon pricing. 
The Green New Deal did not oppose carbon pricing, but it decentered it in favor of an approach focused on standards, investment, and justice. He says, so while I think the left absolutely deserves credit for coming around to a politically viable strategy, this is primarily a triumph of pragmatism, not of organizing or big ideological vision. He said, when I first started out in political journalism, the labor-aligned faction of the Democratic Party was the left wing of the party. These days, as part of overall realigning shifts, it's closer to the right flank of the party precisely because of these disagreements. I thought Biden was correct to insist on taking the labor perspective seriously, and that's ultimately what got a deal done with Joe Manchin. This is a very lengthy piece. I'm just giving you the highlights here, so you're welcome. Um, The climate left wanted to put their issue on the agenda, and they succeeded. To get something done, they had to compromise, and they did. If they and their allies see it as a, as a success story, then that's good. But I do think it's fundamentally dangerous to ignore the extent to which this was an elite-driven policy consensus that flew in the face of the public's views about priorities. And so this is why Democrats are having this messaging tension right now. What do you emphasize? Is it a climate change bill? Is it a health care bill? Is it an Inflation Reduction Act? Democrats need to pivot away from talking about climate, he says. We'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.